are so glad you were with us today here on Unleashed. And um, wow, we've got Thanksgiving um, now in our rearview mirror. And we are moving forward to the Christmas season. This is like this year has just flown. Can you believe, Eric, that it has, <coughs> excuse me, it's been, um, what has it been, three years since COVID? Doesn't seem like it, does it? Holy cow, it seemed like COVID was three years. What kind of is? Because they just will not let that thing die. <sighs> well, we are alive, and we are here, and we are ready, and we're excited about this episode. And Eric, um, good Thanksgiving? Yeah, I did. How about you? Yeah, I'm like two days worth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm still recovering. <laughs> but we last week, we talked a little bit about like the pilgrims and the Indians kind of a thing with what they had to eat at Thanksgiving and all that kind of good stuff. And um, what do we have this week? Okay, so um, Phil from Kentucky had written in. and Yeah, buddy. He, he was talking about what is the most difficult animal to bow hunt. So I just kind of pulled up a list. And uh, I'm just going to ask you if you've hunted any of these. And why are there so many different kinds of deer on this list? <laughs> so, number one, it says whitetail deer. Yeah. Okay. So, there's my experience. I mean, I've got muleys and I've got whitetail. Whitetail, I think, are the one of the toughest animals in the entire planet, period, because of how well they smell and how well they, I mean, they see the, the ultraviolet light and everything. Yeah, they're, yeah, that's what they're it, crazy. Says, uh, yeah, intelligence, adaptability, and they have a sixth sense. Yep. Mule deer, which, now what is a mule deer? Muleys are out west, you know, like in the U.S. Um, their racks look different. You know, if you see two deer, you can tell by the way that they look taller and a little bit strange. They're not like your typical white tails, the, the form and pattern they have. You know, muleys tend to be maybe wider, a little bit taller. They're, they're just a, a bigger deer. Okay. So. Uh this is Roosevelt elk. I've not heard you talk about elk. So, uh, a cooey's deer? Coos. Coos deer, deer, yeah. I mean, elk, I love hunting elk. It's one of my, I mean, oh my word. There is nothing like hearing that bugle of an elk that's not too far. And then he gets to chuckling. And you get that little uh, uh, intimidation back and forth where he wants to see where you are. And he's coming because he wants the females in the area. I mean, when you've got, you know, a, a huge horse-sized animal with, you know, a huge giant rack, you know, coming through the, the bush and you can hear him coming in and thrash and stuff. Oh, there's nothing like that. Where can you get an elk steak, I wonder? An elk steak? Oh, you mean like to eat? Yeah. Oh. Um, you know, there's a lot of meat processors that, that if it's farm raised, you know, they can sell it. So there's a lot like buffalo and ostrich and stuff like that. I know Jungle Gyms over in Ohio sells exotic meats, but I'm yep. curious. Yep, there are there, just look it up on the internet. You can find those things, and yeah, I mean, whitetail. When you think about it, like buffalo, ostrich, um, deer. I mean, three of your top uh, main sources of, of the best protein you can get. That's why I mean, so many guys love to deer hunt because they're readily available, and yeah, it's all good. Okay. Well, you know, it's kind of funny today's story, and I didn't know when I walked in here what the question was going to be, and I was. I was going back through my, my memories, like on Facebook and looking at things. And when I was decorating, my wife and I were decorating for Christmas. Um, you know, it's a kind of a Thanksgiving weekend, kind of a tradition we do. And she's usually the person that'll be, if she would do it, it if I happen, let me, let me correct this. If I would do it with her the very beginning in November, the second Halloween is over, she'd be having the house decorated. But we kind of came to a compromise. And it's funny, I saw this uh, 
this reel the other day, and it was about why is it that men don't like decorating for Christmas? And in the reel, it said, here's why. And here comes the guy coming out with about 20 tubs out of his garage full of Christmas stuff. That's his job. That's my job. Yeah. But I was, you know, putting ornaments and stuff up on the tree, and there was one that has my mom and dad. You know, they're both, they're both gone now. They've been gone for um, almost a decade. Man, I can't believe it. But there was a picture of the two of them on this one ornament. And I was looking at my dad. And, you know, when deer season would come up, and I, I've talked about this. My dad knew nothing about deer hunting, but he loved to take me out. Well, it was, it was my second year is when I got my first deer. Um, and so the first year I was out, my dad, like I've said, he put on Old Spice. We went to the woods and we saw nothing. Like we talk about, whitetails can smell anything. But we had a great time. Well, the next year, you know, in Pennsylvania when I was growing up, you know, you had like two weeks of buck season and then doe season came in and you had two days of doe. And so my dad took me out the very first day, didn't get anything. Well, he was a teacher. He had to teach the next day. Couldn't get that day off. And this is one of the rare times with my dad being a teacher, um, actually let me take a day of school off for something like that to go deer hunting. But since you know, he, he couldn't take me out. He really wanted me to be successful, and he knew that he wasn't the guy for that. And so there was a, a man who I always kind of called like my, my godfather kind of a guy, and his name was Art, Art Birchall. And his um, son-in-law was, was Jack, and they were, of course, much older than I, and, and they offered to take me out um, on that second day. So we go out there, and I, I think we were in a place called Cherry Tree Township or somewhere back in Pennsylvania, and they, they kind of took me to a spot in the woods where they could kind of keep an eye on me. You know, at that, that age, I had to be within visual distance of them and stay with them. And, and actually, here's how it went down. I was with Art, and Jack was maybe 100 yards away from us. We couldn't see him, and we heard a shot. Well, he shot this doe, and it didn't run by us. Of course, I'm the young kid. I hear the shot. I'm already, I'm, you know, I'm thinking this is my chance. And so he comes walking up to us, and he goes, hey, I, I hit this doe, but I don't know how good the hit was. Well, I can tell you this now. I think he did know how good the hit was, and I think he knew that that deer was going to very, very soon be expired. But he did see it run in a direction, and he took me over, um, and he put me on the blood trail. And I think at first it was, you know, let's let him just kind of track it. But they put me in front of the two of them. And the whole purpose now, I think it was, was to help me get my first deer because they knew this deer. If it wasn't dead, it was, it was going to be mortally wounded. And I come walking up. And, I, of course, I'm trying to get ahead of them. They're trying to keep me not too far ahead. And I see this deer, and it's standing there. And it's, it's, I can tell it's on its last leg. Well, I shoot this thing. And I'm pumped. I'm celebrating. Got my first deer. And truth be told, it was his deer. But it's one of those things where they stepped up and said, you know what, this is really going to make his day because I have wanted at that age, you know, I wanted to get go deer hunting since I was probably four years old. And it was one of those days where in that moment I felt like one of them. I was one of the hunters. You know, you get up in the morning and you, you put on all the stuff you've got to have for the cold weather and you take your lunches. And, you know, a kid growing up watching some of these men that you respected and you had a passion for that kind of stuff. It was like saying sick him to a dog. And that first day of deer season, you guys, if, if you're hunters out there, you know, that, that night of your first hunt, you, you didn't sleep at all. And you get out there and, the, and you're, you're freezing cold, but that adrenaline kicks in and you just can't wait to see that first deer. Well, I, I can remember they, they taught me how to get the deer out and then they had me help drag it. You know, I was probably all of 100 pounds. And... 
they set it down by a stump and they said, hey, we're going to go over here for a minute. And so it's, it's tagged. Everything is good. We'll be right back. I leaned up against the stump and I fell sound asleep. Didn't have a gun with me. had nothing. I was just about by myself. And I fall asleep and I open my eyes and there's this red fox at my feet smelling this deer in the blood trail where it was coming out. And I just didn't move. And you know, it's in those moments that the passion in, in a young boy or young girl comes alive for that, that stuff in the outdoors and the things that God, you know, he made. It's a huge deal when a kid gets his first turkey or his first fish. So if you have a chance to take a kid out and allow um, him the opportunity to be successful like that, man, at all costs do it. It's something that he will never, ever forget. The memories, you know, are going to last uh, forever. But, you know, here was the problem in my head. You know, after I got home and, you know, I'd told the story enough times, as a young kid, you begin to tell the story as if almost like the deer wasn't really mortally wounded, right? It's kind of like, hey, I shot this deer. He was at X amount of yards and I dropped him on the spot. And you're trying to be like one of the guys. But the problem was, you know, it's really hard to feel good about yourself and tell, tell the hero story when you know the whole truth, you know, about what happened. You begin to feel like you're not good enough. Um, and so that... What we're going to go today is, you know, when we start to, to believe and live in that life of deceit because we don't feel good enough, you know, we're going to notice how it's almost like an avalanche. You know, in Alaska, I, I would see these, these avalanche shoots coming down the mountainside. And in the spring, you want to go look at the base of these things, these avalanche shoots, because many animals get caught up and you'll find, you know, horns and racks and stuff down there. But when that begins to avalanche in our life, that performance gene that I have to do X, Y, and Z you know, to be good enough. No, I think we really have to pay attention. And for many of us, and I can tell you, it haunts me to this day. I'll tell you in a little bit about some things that were just bugging me this week, but we have to get a grip on it. And we're going to talk about, you know, what the solution is. You know, how do we get off that, that um, hamster wheel, you know, of performance? And, and we all know what snakes do to hamsters, right? So when does this stuff start? So I sat down with a notebook as I was working on this podcast, and I was thinking, what are my earliest memories that I have of, of not being, you know, maybe good enough? And it went right back to when I was in first grade. Now, I didn't have to go to, like, preschool and, and kindergarten back then. It wasn't required. And I wanted to go to school with my best friend, so my mom went ahead and sent me with him. He was, like, almost a year older. So, of course, I'm going to be one of the smaller kids in the class. Well, you got that going against you already because you're not as big as some of the other kids. But I got put in the hospital for almost half of my, my first grade year. Um, and by the time I got out, I was way behind. And I can even remember something as simple as, you know, your ABCs and getting up there and, and, and feeling nervous in that moment in front of the class when you had to recite something or whatever it was. But here's how, I don't know how you guys learned, you know, now I sing my ABCs. But mine was like, oh, now I've said my ABCs. Um, tell me what you think of me rather than, Next time, won't you sing with me? Eric, did you have, um, which one of those did you have? Next time, won't you sing with me or tell me what you think of me? Uh, sing with me. Yeah, mine was, um, tell me what you think of me. And so you can see at that age already, there's that, that pressure to perform. Like we talked about, it's that hamster wheel of performance. And we, we get put on that at a really young age. You know, daddy, watch me do this. Watch me do that. Well, if your dad's ignoring you or he says, well, that kind of stunk. Now, all of a sudden, you begin as a child, because you don't know what to do with that stuff. You begin to have that, you know, that complex of just not being good enough. And so as I, I sat down, I had my, my pen out, and I was kind of just writing things down, and I began to go back through some memories that, man, I've just kind of forgotten about, thank God, some of them. 
Um, but bullying, you know, I mentioned my dad was a school teacher and he was a high school teacher. And I'll tell you about my high school years in just a minute, but him being a teacher in the school system, in the school where I went, and he was pretty strict. He was a disciplinarian that um, didn't always work out the best for me, but uh, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Yeah, sure. But it was, I think, fourth grade when I, I can remember being bullied. I think first, second, and third grade were pretty good. Uh, but fourth grade, there was this kid, and he and I were kind of talking about who was tougher. And I turned around, and he taps me on the shoulder. And I turn around, and he just punches me right between the eyes, rings my bell. The teacher wasn't in the classroom, and this one girl's wanting to tell. And I'm like, no, don't tell. And I'm crying, fourth grade, you know. Because this teacher, my fourth grade teacher was like six feet tall. I mean, she was big. And she kind of, this is not going to sound, I, I, child memories, she was kind of like the bride of Frankenstein. I mean, she was big and mean, kind of had the personality of an Adolf Hitler. I mean, she was scary. And if you're listening, please write in. <laughs> yeah, you are not politically correct. Do not pass go. Yeah, whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here in this classroom after this stuff has happened, right? I don't know what to do. Well, the teacher tells everybody to get up. You're going to go to the bathroom. And I go to the bathroom with all the boys are lined up, girls are lined up, up. She's standing in the hall waiting for all of us to come back out to get us to the classroom. And I step up to the urinal and one of these boys that were taller than I was comes to each side of me. And at the count of three, they turn toward me and they pee all over my legs. Now, I'm already, nice. I'm already scared, right, about everything, about this teacher, about the, the boy that just punched me in the face for no reason. And then why would they do that? You're thinking, why would, why would they do that? You're totally humiliated. So, I mean, literally, I mean, kind of like throwing a cold bucket of spit on my day. So they are laughing and they leave. Everyone leaves. I'm still standing there. I can't go. I mean, I'm humiliated. I don't know what to do. And I can hear the teacher yelling my name, and I can't respond. I'm afraid of her. The next thing you know, she walks in to the boys' bathroom. Now, that might not be that uncommon today. Yeah, that's another subject. But she walks in, grabs me. By, and I'm still standing at the urinal. She grabs me by the shoulders, and she shakes me and tells me to hurry up. Well, now I'm, I'm just a total wreck. I can't go. So I just leave. I go back to the class. Well, you know, about another hour and a half or so, they're going to do recess outside. Well, I've, I've been raising my hand trying to let her get me to go to the bathroom. She's like, you had your chance. Well, now I, I don't want to say a word. Well, I'm fourth grade. You know, that's, you're not peeing your pants anymore, right? Well, guess what? Everyone stands up to go to recess, and I can't because I did. And my seat, remember those desks that were like all one unit with the chair, and you kind of folded them up? Oh, yeah. That was my, my desk. And I'm kind of like trying to hide behind this thing because I don't want anyone to know, but I'm humiliated. So I had to, when everyone goes out, she's telling me to get up and I kind of use my finger and I motioned her over. And I said, um, I need to go home. She's like, why do you need to go home? And I had to tell her I was totally humiliated. Well, my house was only like maybe 250 yards away. It wasn't far at all. And I said, I just live right through there. I know the path that goes through the woods. And I said, please, I don't want anyone to know. She let me go. Oh, nice. So I, I go out the back, I run home, get changed, come back down before, you know, the uh, uh, recess is going to be over. But that experience was so, as you can imagine, for, to a young guy, traumatizing to have two guys just turn and do that to you. And then you're like, what do I do with this? So, you know, it's trying to get courage up to be able to, um, you know, 
tell other guys, especially when you're young, things that you struggle with, things you you try to begin to pose at that age because you're trying to act, you know, tough or good or whatever it is because you don't like yourself. There, there had to be some reason you're thinking why that kid punched me, why she came in the bathroom and shook me by my shoulders, why those boys urinated on me. It sounds funny now, but it wasn't at the time. Um, you know, but what's, what's the reason? And, and you know, what's funny is that boy that uh, punched me in the face, a few years later, um, they wanted me to box his younger brother. And I'm thinking, well, he's a couple years younger. Well, they put a roll of quarters in each one of his hand, in his gloves. And I can remember getting hit and thinking, man, can this kid hit hard. But, you know, that, that school year, you know, as, the, as, the, as it began to keep going on, I felt less and less um, confident, as you can imagine. I, I, kept, I basically then, I just didn't want to try to fit in anymore. I just tried to disappear. I didn't want conflict. Um, did you ever see that movie, Eric? It was called uh, The Diary of a Wimpy Kid. No. Was it a book first? Yeah, I think it might have been a book, but they came out, I think there was a couple of movies, like there was a second, you know, the sequel of it, but it was about this little kid who was just, I mean, I, I can relate when I watched that movie for the first time, I'm like, man, that was, that was me. They had a thing called on there, like it, it's called the cheese touch. And basically we had cooties, like when we were a kid, you know, you put CP on your hand, like cootie proof, germ proof, all that. And we still they, do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, COVID proof. I don't know, but I, I can remember watching that movie and going, that was me. Because the cheese touch was something you didn't want because everyone would want to stay away from you or something. So, you know, I made it through fourth grade. I felt like that diary of a, a wimpy kid, you know, guy. And so I get to sixth grade. Now we're going to skip fifth. And I go to sixth grade. And there was this girl I'd had a crush on since first grade. And I'm not going to say her name on here, but I had this crush on this girl. And in sixth grade, there was another boy who really had a crush on her, too. And we both wanted to impress her. You know, that's, that's about the age when you're really starting to notice, you know, the girls and they're noticing the guys. And back then we still had blackboards and they had, you know, those black erasers for the chalk and you would erase the board. And they had a, a room where you would go and there was like a belt and you'd put the, the, um, the erasers on there and it would get all the, the dust off of it. So the teacher told the two of us to go take these erasers and get all the, the dust cleared off of the, the chalk erasers. So they'd be good when you go to erase the board again. Well, you know, this kid... When we were in there, um, he pats me on the back when we're done, say, man, good job, good job. Well, you, I, Eric's nodding his head laughing. He already knows. Of course, the kid had put his hand in chalk, and I had handprints all over my shirt. So we come back, and the teacher has us kind of standing there and say, hey, thank them for doing this. And the kids are all laughing at me. And I thought, what are they laughing at? Especially this girl I had the crush on. And then everyone's pointing at my back. There I was, the kid with the cheese touch, right? I've got chalk all over my back. So the teacher goes out. No, oh, I'm mad. Now, this kid, I think he was from Wisconsin, and his first name wasn't a boy's name. I mean, there's names that cross over, right? But he would never let anybody know what that was because he didn't want the kids teasing him. Well, I found out what his name was, and I call him by that name, and now he's furious. And now we're going on, who's better, the Green Bay Packers or the Steelers? And he comes up, puts me in a headlock when the teacher leaves the room, and he starts punching me in the head. <laughs> I just must be a great target. I don't know. And so he, she comes back in, and I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to hold back the tears because I knew in fourth grade what happened to me. But I'm sixth grade. There's girls now that I'm noticing, and I want to be noticed, so I'm trying not to do anything. Well, one of the girls went up and told the teacher what had happened. So she makes us both stay after school and staple all these test papers. You know, you pick up one from this pile, one from this pile, you put them together. So um, his job was to pick up one of each one of the pages, and mine was to staple them when he would put them in front of me. 
Well, you know, he was a much bigger kid than I was, but this was my chance. And he put that paper down, and I stapled his thumb. <laughs> I was no longer the, the little train that could, right? I did. And, oh, man, I got in such trouble for that. But it was now all of a sudden, hey, Henderson, man, did you see what he did to that guy? You know, that kind of thing. So I didn't really do much of anything, but all of a sudden I had this don't mess with him kind of a thing. Well, that didn't last long. Um, you know, I, I get to seventh grade, and now I'm in youth group in church. Now, this is funny. So that's about the age, you know, when you're going, man, have you kissed anybody yet? You know, there's all those kind of questions that experimenting and, you know, what was it like and what do you do? All those kind of things. And so here I am in seventh grade, in between seventh and eighth grade, and I'm in youth group in church. And that year in the Church of God out of Anderson, Indiana, we had our national youth convention in Denver, Colorado. So they, they rented a charter bus, you know, and we all get packed up. We all, back then, we had tie-dye shirts, and, you know, instead of suitcases, you're kind of having these big look like, you know, naval sack things you're carrying over your shoulder, and get on the bus, and we're going. And now the cool kids, you know how this works on the bus. You know, the cool kids sit in the back, and the adults kind of all sit up front to get away from the noise. Well, I wanted to be one of the cool kids, so I'm like maybe three rows, four rows from the very back. I'm trying to work my way in slowly, and we had been on the road like, I don't know, a day, day and a half, and everybody's getting bored. So this one kid in the back says, hey, I want to play a game, but here's the deal. you got to sit beside someone of the opposite sex. Oh, I didn't know what the game was going to be, so I'm sitting beside someone, and there's everyone's, you know, we're all intermingled in the bag, boy, girl, boy, girl. And they were looking for something like a bottle, and no one had a bottle. Well, I had this black and white transistor radio. That's what we had back then. And they said, hey, can we borrow that? And we need this for the game. And I'm like, Sure. I thought they were just going to play songs or something on musical chairs. I don't know what they were doing. And everyone's peeking out around their seat, looking down at the floor where the radio, they put it on the floor and they spin it. Well, you can guess this was not spin the bottle. This was spin the radio. I didn't know what they were doing. Well, it pointed to my row. Well, there was a girl sitting on the outside row and I thought whatever it pointed to, she has to do something with somebody else. Wasn't me. And they said, Oh, you're the first ones. You got to kiss her. Dude. I froze. This girl was, um, how do I say this? Um, wouldn't have been my first choice at that age to kiss. I think you've told us a little bit. Is it, she Did a little I? bit of a mustache? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she, so she had a little bit of the. Uh, a little Tom little, Selleck there. A little Tom Selleck. Uh-huh. Continue. <laughs> well, now it would be Travis Kelsey, right? I have. With no Taylor idea. Swift. He's, he's got the mustache thing. Uh, okay. On. I don't even, yeah. So. And she turns around, man, and she lays one on me before I know what's coming. And I remember just, you know, I've been kissed by my grandma before when I was young. That was no big deal. You know, I figured I'll just wipe my mouth off and go on. But there was no just wiping my mouth off as just like we talked about uh, clams. You know, I think it was last week we talked about, was it the razor clams or whatever, how they can stick that tongue or that foot out and they can siphon stuff through it. Man, she slips me that clam foot thing and I'm like what was that she'd had McDonald's for lunch and I could it was nasty McDonald's after about an hour is nasty Mm -hmm. so you know there you go there was my first rodeo and I failed miserably um you know I was I was scared to death now at this point uh girls but here's something that I did not share for years so we're kind of starting to move into now about you know I've already been talking about you know like bullying and things but what are some of those things we have behaviors now and they stick with us, and they haunt us. I mean, everyone kind of goes through the childhood bullying or not feeling good, getting a bad grade on a test, or not performing well at a sporting event or something. 
And this is something I, I don't think I've, I think I finally wrote about it um, in one of my, my recent books. I think it might have been The Roar Within. I don't remember. But I had a piano teacher. I had piano lessons for like 12 years. Well, back then, that wasn't a cool thing. You know, you, you played basketball, you wrestled, you weren't a, you know, a, a pianist, right? And so, guys, I didn't want anybody to kind of know. Well, my parents wanted me to take music classes. My mom was real musical. And, uh, I mean, it, it served me well for many, many years after that. But at that age, it wasn't a cool thing. And this piano teacher... Um, her husband had been dead for years. Um, she was probably in her, I don't know, mid-50s when I started taking piano lessons. And while I would be playing the piano, there was a big mirror above the piano. And she had a chair behind me, like up on a pedestal kind of thing, real weird kind of a thing, kind of like Cruella de Vil or something. And I can remember she would smoke those cigarettes with those, those little plastic thing, kind of like Cruella de Vil. She would sit up there. And I can remember so many times when she would be sitting behind me in her bra, giving me piano lessons. She would come down and sit beside me on the piano bench, dressed that same way. No one, I didn't feel like I could tell anybody. And by the time I finally told my parents, this went on every week. I mean, it was, you know, at the, you're a kid. You don't, this was like between first and sixth grade. And I told my parents and they didn't believe me. And so they went to their son or, or their friend's son who also had piano lessons. And he says, yeah, she does that with me too every week. Eric, I couldn't look a woman in the eyes until I was probably about 30 years old. No kidding. Because I felt this shame. I was like, I was not good enough. Because I felt, you know, at that point, you know, like, um, what's wrong with me? I must be a creep. But I couldn't look a woman. I remember having women come up to me and say, man, why don't you look me in the eyes? I, I couldn't, I didn't even know. But we have these things within us that we don't understand these patterns of behaviors that come because of the things that happen to us as kids. And you got to remember something. You know, when you're talking about a child, this isn't someone who's, you know, a young adult. This is something that, that happens to children. And unfortunately, it happens, you know, way too often with this kind of stuff. And then the kid grows up with this sexualized something that they don't know what to do with. And they become either a repeat uh, offender type thing or whatever. But it's, it's one of those things where you don't know what to do with it because you now feel like you're bad. So I, you know, I changed piano teachers I, when I got into high school, but here was the thing. Now I'm in high school, and the piano teacher I was going to was a male piano teacher who was right across the street. He had to go right to his house when you left the school, and I didn't want them knowing I was taking piano lessons. And so I would get out of school. I would hide my piano books because I didn't feel like I was going to fit in. I would run to that lesson. I would get out of school and try to be the first one so they couldn't see where I was going. And, on the, and then on the other four days when I didn't have piano lessons, I had to literally find different ways to walk home almost every day because some of these kids that were upperclassmen, I told you about my dad being, you know, pretty disciplinarian. Um, they would chase me home, sometimes throw rocks at me, yell at me, cuss at me, all kinds of stuff. So, man, when you have these patterns, if you don't have someone speaking into your life that's really helping you understand who you are, where your worth and value comes from, when you get older, I'm telling you, and, you, and I know, I, I don't know of a single guy that I've ever talked to, that he doesn't struggle in some area with feeling like he's not good enough. Um, gosh, one night, I, geez, this is bringing back memories. I played trumpet, and I was in the pep band, seventh grade, littlest kid in my class. And the, the music teacher told us to go to the other end of the school to get something she forgot while, you know, the school was closed, the main building was closed, just the, the uh, gymnasium was open for this basketball game. And this other kid went with me, and he was the state wrestling champ. We get out of sight of everybody else. He puts me in a headlock. 
and literally drags me the entire way of the school, upstairs, everything, tells me that if I tell anybody, he'll break my neck. So you can see, man, you, you begin to, to walk with these fears. So, I mean, getting past all this kind of stuff, what did I do with my pain? You know, maybe some of you guys out there, there was a, was a magazine like Charles Atlas when you were a kid and you'd see him, you know, you see the bully kicking sand in someone's face and he goes and starts lifting weights and now he's the big guy. And I wanted to be that guy. And let me tell you, I wasn't. <laughs> I graduated high school at six feet tall and 118 pounds. So, you know, what did I do, you know, after I graduated to try to, you know, compensate for that kind of stuff? Because I didn't go to college right away. Um, you know, I, I took up the martial arts. You know, I'll never forget the master of the, uh, the uh, Kung Fu Dojo. That was my first martial art that I, I studied. Um, and telling me, he, and he was a Golden Gloves boxer when he was younger. And he'd tell me, he goes, man, you got really fast hands. Man, just having him, you know, notice me or that I had some potential. I mean, it meant everything. And let me say something. Words matter. Just like when I was deer hunting and those guys, man, that's your deer. Congratulations. This guy noticing and saying, man, you got fast hands made me work twice as hard, 10 times as hard because he noticed something, you know, in me. And, you know, when I go back and I think about, you know, I was talking about the music stuff. Maybe there was something when you were growing up that your parents could see later on is going to pay off for you, but at the time you don't want to do it. I mean, had I not gone through all those, those music lessons and stuff, you know, I, I would have never been able to, you know, have a lot of the career I did, you know, being in, in music and, geez, I, I can remember hearing a, a song one time that was on the Grammy Awards. I was in, in college and the girl I was dating were sitting there. And as this one artist went up to uh, receive an award, the song that was playing was one that I had helped co-write. And I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh. All of a sudden, my self-worth tank felt filled because I felt like in front of her eyes, you know, I was good enough because, you know, we're just college students and I have a song being played on the Grammy Awards. But as quickly as you can feel like, you know, a somebody, you can, you can feel like a nobody. And why? Why is that? Because we're getting our worth and value, you know, from the totally wrong place. As long as we're getting our value from anybody else, we'll try to manipulate them to get our needs met. That's, that's what we will do. And we'll never settle in to just being able to be loved for who we are. Um, I, was, uh, I was on my way to the studio uh, doing a, a vocal session here just this, this past week. And, you know, I, like I, I think I've shared before, I did studio sessions for at least 30 years. Um, commercials for radio and television, for Coca-Cola, AT&T, I mean, just all kinds of companies. And, uh, you know, getting older, you're, you're realizing you don't have the, the vocal chops you had at one time. And then you're thinking, you know, there's some young guys that are out of college now and they're kind of wanting to come in and, and you know, take that spot, just like the young buck and the old buck. And he's wanting to, you know, beat the old buck. And I thought, you know what, it's, it's time for me to be like what Jack was with my deer. You know, it's like, hey, here you go. I'm going to pass this off to you. You know, good job. You, you've got the talent. And so about 18 months ago, I, I just kind of quietly stepped away from doing any studio work. I, you know, kind of changed an email address and they were like, I don't know how to get a hold of you. Well, some of it was wanting the young bucks to come in and fill in my spot, but I'll be honest with you. Some of it was realizing my limitations now, you know, at my age. Because if I tried to go in and compare myself to some of these, these young bucks that are in there, um, I'm, I mean, I'm doomed to, to feel like I'm not good enough all the time because these young guys, that's, that's what they do. You know, what does Galatians um, 6, 4, and 5, you know, say about stuff like this? I love this. It says, make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you've been given 
and then sink yourself into that. It says, don't be impressed with yourself. And then it says, don't compare yourself with others, for each one must take responsibility for doing the creative best that you can with your own life. Well, I got a call from my buddy who uh, is an arranger, um, a great a great vocalist, um, does a lot of arrangements for um, Sight and Sound Theater. Some of you guys have them in Branson, and they have them in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And I had done some of their stuff years ago, but I've gotten older, and he calls me. He goes, dude, he goes, this is a great session. I'd love to have you on it. And it's getting towards Christmas time. I knew we would probably need the money, and so I swallowed hard because I didn't want to go to my wife and say, yeah, I'm not doing that because I just don't feel real good about myself anymore. That's not real attractive. So I'm like, okay, got it. Put it in my book. And on the way to the session, I started like just thinking about, man, I don't, I, I almost, well, I didn't turn around and go home, but I felt like I just didn't even want to be there. And so as I was going, I started saying to myself, you know, what are the areas in my life where I am comparing myself to others? Like Galatians says, don't do that. It says, make a careful exploration of who you are. So I began to do that. And I'm telling you, the list of the areas of my life, everything from getting up in the morning and seeing, you know, puffy eyes looking in the mirror, you know, coming right back at you, to everything you can imagine during your day, there's areas where if we make a careful exploration, we're going to discover that there's so many places where we don't feel good enough. And why is it? It's because we've compared ourselves with others. You know, whether it be on social media, whether it be on television. You know, even, even my uh, youngest, when she goes to school now, she was making up a Christmas list in the other day, and she was showing us. She, she made an entire PowerPoint, you know, of what, the stuff she wants, and she rated them on a 10 scale and put links in there for her mom to be able to look at and copy. Incredible. This girl is amazing. But, you know, as, as we're going through these lists, I said, well, there's some other stuff that's like kind of an off-brand. You know, I grew up, my, my mom and dad, my dad, he didn't, he didn't go out and buy Dr. Pepper, right? He bought Dr. Check. You know, he didn't buy Rice Krispies. He bought Crispy Rice. That's because they came out of that depression time. They were just after the depression. They had to learn how to save money. So that's kind of the mindset. So I started saying, hey, you know, here's some company. I can't even remember. She was like Lululemon, and I don't even know these, these companies that make women's clothing. I said, but, well, you can probably get something like that at Marshall's, you know, half price. And she goes, no, you get made fun of. I said, are you serious? She goes, yeah, if you don't have $300 tennis shoes, if you don't have, and I'm going, wow. And, and I can remember as a kid, we had Bart Star tennis shoes. Some of you guys might remember those tennis shoes, or if you didn't have Converse or whatever it was. But it has permeated into our culture now in everything that we do that we absolutely have to be the best. You know, so how then do we get, we get past this stuff? So let's kind of bring this kind of down to a close here because I really do want to leave you on a note with something that says you don't have to do that. You don't have to buy into the opinion that everybody else, what they think of you is going to be who you are because there's nothing further from the truth. And we talk about this a lot on this podcast because you're dealing with this a lot. So I want you to make a careful exploration, okay, of the areas of your life and you can do it after the podcast. You can do it as soon as you turn this thing off as you're driving or whatever. But I want you to begin to look at those areas in your life where you can honestly say, I don't feel good enough in this position. What is that, that thing? You know, is it with your wife? You're afraid you're not making enough money. Maybe you're afraid you're not good enough in bed. You know, that your, your wife is like, man, my gosh, you know, who is this guy? 
And I mean, like I said, nothing is off topic here. Be honest, write it down. Maybe you're, you've put on some weight and you're going, man, how can I ever get this weight off? Maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you're the guy that needs to get some weight on. But here's the thing. You're good enough doesn't come from any of that stuff. I'm not saying don't do it because your worth and value comes from Christ in you. I think it's, it's great to be looking at our diet or exercise or trying to find a way to support your family. But when you get to the place to where your performance is, dicta- or is dictated by how you feel about yourself, that's where the problem comes in. There was a, a commercial years ago by, um, was it Gatorade? Was Be Like Mike? Was that what it was? Michael Jordan. You know, I think he was the best. Now, I'm not even, not even going to say arguably. I think he was the best basketball player we ever, we've ever seen. And all these kids were out there, you know, trying to make a basket and dunk it like Mike Jordan. They, they would lower the brim, you know, so they could try to do spinning slams and all these things. Well, here's the deal. There's only one Michael Jordan. And they put this commercial out with this stuff. Be like Mike and the song and everything. Well, what's the problem with that? No one could do what Michael Jordan did. So if you're comparing yourself to him, it doesn't matter whether you're drinking Gatorade or whether you're wearing, you know, Michael Jordan's shoes or Jordan's or whatever, Air Jordan's. It doesn't matter. You're not going to be him. There was one of him. I'm not saying don't learn from that. Don't be, in, be inspired by that. But don't get your worth and value and compare yourself to that person. And what's really amazing is, you know, I think it was years later that Nike came out and realized that that Gatorade commercial didn't really make a lot of kids feel good about themselves to want to buy their product. And they came out with a commercial that still has an impact to me. Maybe some of you guys saw this, but it was these doors open up. It's kind of a darkened room. And Jordan's got on this long, like one of those duster jackets and like the Cowboys would wear. And he comes walking out and he looks at the camera and he says, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And then he finishes and says, and that's why I succeed. You know, I don't know what has knocked you down in this life. I I don't know all of your scars, your stories. You heard some of mine, and I'm saying that because I want you to know you're not alone. But you were created in the image of the one who made Michael Jordan. In the image of Muhammad Ali. I mean, he was made in God's image. When you think about some of these gifts and talents, when you look at the the snow-capped mountain where that avalanche shoot was, when you look at the white-tailed deer we talked about, when we look at love of a man passing it on to a young boy so that he could feel successful and feel encouraged, that's the God that we serve and where your identity comes from. So today, everything that's going on, make that that list. Where are the areas that you struggle with finding you're good enough? Give them to God and renew your mind with, no matter what, no matter who I am, where I've been, or what I've done, I am good enough because the God of the universe is in me. I hope you find some encouragement in that, and you absolutely have what it takes. So go encourage someone today and be a part of what we talk about, the resistance, for we are the resistance. We'll see you next time.